0: Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is President of Mojave Audio, Dusty Wakeman. First of all, there's two new surveys that just came out about how well the music business did for the first half of 2017. One is from Buzz Angle, and the other one is from Nielsen, and they found out some interesting things. First of all, YouTube seems to be losing ground to streaming services. And this is something I pointed out several podcasts ago, but now we have the numbers to back it up, or I should say more numbers. In the first half of the year, subscription streams were up by 69%, and YouTube was only up by 6%. Now that's 141.3 billion streams for subscriptions and 101.5 billion for YouTube. That's a lot of streams. And they're going up, which is interesting. So, of course, the money is going up from subscription. And that's a good thing because there are some other numbers that were kind of interesting here. Many critics say that one of the reasons why the YouTube streams weren't increasing like subscriptions is the fact that YouTube stopped reporting videos that recorded less than a 1,000 streams per day, a 1,000 views per day. And many feel that that would have made up the difference, while many other critics say, nah, not so much. So we don't know about that, but the one thing we do know is streaming is getting more popular than viewing music. Now, there's some other interesting numbers. Of course, streaming is going up and there's more money being made from that, but as a result, there's also less money being made in other areas. Now, for one thing, downloads are down 24%, no surprise there. Album sales, however, are down 14%, and digital albums especially are down 24%. So if you're going to make an album, you might want to rethink that because people are buying fewer and fewer albums, and they mean less and less to the general music-consuming public. CD sales are down 4% and that's a surprise that it's only 4% because it's been dropping by a lot more in the past. Vinyl is up 20%, no surprise there. When we look at the type of music though that was most listened to, out of all of those streams, 24.4% went to hip hop while pop came in at number two with 13%. So all you rock fans out there, There's fewer and fewer of you (laughs) listening to that type of music these days. And we're going to get into that in a second because the next thing I'm going to talk about actually has a lot to do with these numbers. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at probablyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. So as I just alluded to, the numbers for rock are kind of ominous. And one of the reasons why, again, this is from a few podcasts ago, is the electric guitar is losing prominence in the music business. And as a result of that, There's a big announcement from Fender that they're going mobile. And what's happening is Fender is now presenting online lessons. It's something called Fender Play, and they're $20 a month. The difference between Fender Play and traditional lessons is that you go right into playing songs. Well, you're learning chords as you're learning how to play songs, but there's no learning chords first, learning scales, any of that stuff. You're jumping right into songs. One of the reasons why is they found that 50% of guitar buyers are now girls, and that's because of Taylor Swift, believe it or not. And most of them are buying acoustic guitar, and ukuleles especially, ukulele sales are just going through the roof. That being said, electric guitar sales are down from a peak of about 1.5 million a year 10 years ago to around 1 million a year, so there's still a lot sold, but there's a lot fewer of them. And what's more is there are no guitar heroes to young people that are buying guitars today. As a matter of fact, only 10% of them want to be in a band at all, which is way, way different because just about everybody wanted to be in a band when I was growing up. Another interesting fact is most people want to learn songs on guitar that weren't originally on guitars. So for instance, EDM songs, which they don't translate very well to guitar, but that's what entry-level guitar players want to know and another fact and this is kind of sad nine out of ten entry-level guitar players will end up giving up so it's not too encouraging what's happening I think the encouraging part is the fact that there's more girls and women getting into this but there are fewer and fewer men and there are fewer and fewer people that want to get into bands which of course is driving the type of music that we're listening to and vice versa So if you want to know why the music we're listening to is the way it is, it has to do a lot with the fact that people are not as enthused about the electric guitar as they once were. My guest today is president of Mojave Audio, Dusty Wakeman. Dusty was originally on episode number nine about three years ago, where he spoke about his career as a bass player and a studio owner and a producer. This time, we focused just on Mojave Audio's excellent microphones, which I highly recommend, and I have to say the new MA-1000 is really spectacular. I spoke to him by phone from his office in Burbank, California. Last time you were on, we talked all about your music background. Now let's talk more about Mojave. You had such a wide career as a musician and a studio owner and a producer. Then you wound up at Mojave. Tell me about the change to get there.
1: Well, starting in 2001, you might remember that the record industry was kind of starting to fall off a cliff. And uh, I'd been doing it for a long time at that point. I had one kid and another one on the way and ended up having a... Couple of hour conversation with John Jennings from Royer Labs, and uh, who's vice president of Royer Labs and one of the owners of Mojave, and just you know talking about how I was kind of looking around for something else to do that you know it was really a lifestyle choice more than anything else. So, you know I think the studio could have gone on indefinitely because it was doing well and you know I seemed to have an endless supply of projects to do, but. Uh, you know, working 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, just wasn't working for me on a lifestyle basis anymore. So, you know, it was just one of those right place at the right time things. I talked to John, and right at that time, they had he had the first prototype of the MA-200 and brought it over to listen to. And Eddie Kramer was working at the studio at the time. We put it up next to my 67s, and we're just blown away with how... Close to a sixty seven it sounded, and you know, when I found out what they were going to sell them for, I just kind of raised my hand and said, "Look, if there's anything I can do to help or be part of this, let me know." And John just looked at me and said, "Well, we're looking for somebody to run the company. So that was in January of uh, two thousand five, and I started running the company in September of two thousand five. actually went to Burning Man came back, and then the following Monday started at Mojave. (laughs) So it was kind of a nice transition.
0: Yeah, very cool. Yeah, you've been there from the beginning.
1: Yeah, from this version. Now, David was making mics under the Mojave name in his garage in the 90s before Warrior Labs ever existed. So there is kind of a history there, but for the modern era, I've been here since the beginning.
0: Now, when he was making microphones, weren't they microphone kits? Or at one time, wasn't Mojave doing microphone kits?
1: Well, before that, way before that, he was hand-making microphones in his garage uh, under the Mojave name. But what happened was, in 2001, he published an article in Tape Op on how to take a, um, I think it was a Marshall microphone, and like a $99 Chinese microphone. They had started appearing on the market how to do a tube mod on it and turn it into a really nice-sounding mic. And you could still find that article online. Um, I think it's called From Berlin to Barstow or something like that. <laughs> and uh, it had the drawings and the plans and how to do it and everything. So there was a lot of response to that. So this was right before I came on board. The, the guys decided to make a kit available for 350 bucks, and um, that was under the Mojave name. So you, for $350, bucks, you would get an ammo case for the power supply, all the parts you needed, schematics or how-to booklet. And um, the same thing happened a couple of years later with the small diaphragm mic with an MXL. And uh, David did the same thing, another article in TAPOP, how to do the mod. So the first thing you learn really quickly is you don't want to be in the, the uh, kid business on any sort of a scale because you spend all your time on the phone trying to (laughs) troubleshoot, you know, where people got their wires crossed.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So that just kind of inspired us to, you know what, we should make these ourselves, and that way we can have quality control over them. That's what led to the first Mojave's, which was the MA200.
0: There's a lot of um, do-it-yourself companies that have popped up in recent years. I know Microphone Parts is a very interesting company, and, and I suppose they have the same problem as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're doing it on a small scale, it's pretty cool. But if any sort of a scale, it just gets out of hand. You know, David would be on the phone for hours a day trying to troubleshoot, you know, where somebody mixed up pin one and pin six, their XLR, you know, little things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we just aspired to be a bigger company than that. But yeah, there's a lot of kits. I still get requests for the kits all the time. And we just have to say, sorry, we're not doing that anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, I understand. What do you think makes Mojave different from other microphone companies? Because there's so many out there, there's so many things, microphones to choose from. So, what differentiates Mojave?
1: Well, you know, first off, there's so many more now than there were 12 years ago. It's mind blowing how many people are making large diaphragm condenser mics. Um, Number one differentiation is David Royer. I mean, he's a genius. He's won a technical Grammy for reinventing the ribbon mic, and all of our mics are designed by him. So that's kind of our secret weapon. Um, I don't think I would have even tried this had it not been for the Royer connection. And, you know, people see the Royer name, they're at least interested in giving the mic a shot. And, you know, that that's a big door opener right there. We were the first company to manufacture in China but use really high-grade American parts like Jensen transformers and the uh, new old stock tubes that we use and various other components. We kind of started that. Now everybody does that. And um, it's a a, a good model for the mid-price range microphones. But I think those two things are what really set us apart. I mean, there's no... MBAs in Royer or Mojave, we're all engineers, we're all my guys, and uh, we build stuff that we use and stuff that we love and um, hope that it makes money at the end of the day so that we can keep on doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Aren't the transformers special that you use?
1: Well, the Jensen transformers are just stock. We use a couple of different models. They're just stock Jensen transformers. The MA-1000, which is kind of our flagship mic these days, which is basically David's take on a 251, uses a specially designed toroidal transformer made by Coast Magnetics. And the, the funny story about that is we were going through different versions of that microphone, and, you know, it was sounding good, but it didn't have the huge, warm bottom end that I, I was looking for. That You know, a vintage mic has to have that wow factor when you go up and talk into it. We just weren't quite there yet. So we spent a day over at LAFX, A being our prototypes next to their 251 and their 47. They have quite a, quite a mic locker over there. And um, just weren't there yet. So we came back to the shop, and David started rummaging through a box and pulls out this, this big white round transformer that's the size of a mini donut, <laughs> plugs it in. And that was the the missing link. It just gave it the huge bottom end that we were looking for. That's a custom-designed transformer made to David's to his specs.
0: I have to say that the MA-1000 sounds wonderful. You could tell you spent a lot of time on it, and also that big bottom you just spoke of is definitely there. And the nice, high, open top end. Boy, it's a wonderful-sounding mic, and especially for the money. It's a great buy.
1: Yeah, thanks. We worked hard on that mic and really wanted to make sure that you know, like I say it has that wow, wow factor. When you go to a top studio and put up the vintage mics and you talk on them for the first time, you, you go wow and you understand why those mics are so highly prized. And I wanted to make sure it had that factor to it when people tried it out.
0: Which brings me to the next question. How are new products decided upon and developed?
1: Uh, it's pretty unscientific around here. It's pretty much what, I mean, David's got a notebook full of designs. And there's a bunch of them that I'd love to make. A lot of it is just depends on how much capital is available. But um, that mic we just got really excited about. Felt like it should be the next one. We've got a handheld dynamic that I have a prototype of. Um, probably at the top in our next logical mic would be David's take on a 47. And I've got a prototype of that. I should get that in your hand sometime. Let you play
0: with it. Yeah, I love I know that. what you think but a handheld dynamic i'm really curious about that and uh, considering that we just went through the 50th anniversary of the SM57 58 you know which and still right. you know that there're still standards so i can understand why you'd go after that market even so you really have to be very confident about entering that market you know against something that's so established
1: right well david doesn't like dynamic microphones so it it's taken years for me to get a design out of him. He just kind of looks at it as an inferior technology, excluding ribbon mics, of course, which are technically dynamics. Um, But we tried a lot of different cartridges and finally found one that was up to his standards and designed a mic around that. It's got a, a tuning network in it that dampens the cartridge. So it's got the David Royer touch to it. It's a really nice sounding mic. And, um, you know, I just feel like it's something we need to have in our product line eventually. People are always asking us when we're going to bring out the dynamic microphone, so it it does exist, and I'm not sure if it'll be the next mic, but we're we're close.
0: How would it differ from like a standard 57, which everybody knows what it sounds like?
1: We A-beat it. We were over David Bianco's studio and A-beat it, and it was just so much more open and more clear, more highs, more lows, more beta, and... um it was kind of a astounding difference.
0: Wow. That's cool.
1: We haven't really tried it with a big sound system yet. We've tried it over at Central Staging a little bit. Jim Neal over there is a big fan of the mic and uh, has been doing some beta testing for us. So, you know, you, a dynamic microphone, you really need to get him out there on a big stage with a lot of them and loud monitors and things like that to try him out. But it's a really nice sounding mic. You know, his damping circuit tends to flatten it out, so... Hopefully that's going to give us more gain before feedback and a uh, little less peaky than a lot of the dynamics that are out there.
0: Oh, so this was made more for live than than the studio.
1: It's, you know, it's for both. I mean, what's a 57 made for?
0: Yeah, well, it's true, yeah. Is there a philosophy at Mojave that David has about tubes versus FETs? Uh, not
1: really, because our FET mics sound fabulous. I don't know if you've ever played around with the the three hundred one FET, but it's an it's a U eighty seven killer for about the fourth the price. Mm. Really gorgeous sounding mic, and a lot of the rock guys for drum overheads or for vocals or voiceover people, they really prefer FETs because they have a little extra presence to them that tubes don't have, you know, by a slight degree. So there's no real preference there. David loves tubes, you know, all his handmade tube amp, you know. Power amplifiers and phono preamps all have tubes to them, but he's not a tube snob by any means.
0: Isn't it difficult to get tubes these days?
1: Well, we bought about 20,000 of the 5840, so it's not difficult for <laughs> us. And he discovered that tube. David was in the Navy, he was a, a sonar technician and discovered that tube while in the Navy and uh, really favors it. I mean, it's the same tube we use in all our tube mics. And it's used in the Royer tube mics. And um, it's kind of a David Royer secret tube. But there's lots of them out there. And as a former U47 owner, the last thing I wanted was to design microphones with tubes that you can't get.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: it's, It's worked out really well. There's plenty of them out there on the market.
0: But considering it's a tube that hasn't been used before, what's it like in terms of lifespan? It's also a miniature tube, right?
1: yeah it's a sub miniature it's a pinto that we use as a, as a triode and um they're new old stock they they came out of that i don't know there's a kind of a legendary sell off where the us military sold off all the tubes they had i think it took place in the 80s so they came out of that and um, you know some of them mics that we put out 12 years ago they're working fine some of them they last a few months and we have to replace them which is why we have plenty of them. It's really hard to know. And there's different, you know, it's a 5840, but some were made by Motorola, some were made by Sylvania. They were made by different companies, different batches, Mm. all to the military spec. So it's hard to know, but we're very liberal about changing tubes for people if they have a problem.
0: What don't we know about microphones that you know? (laughs) <laughs> was there something as a user that when you finally got behind the scenes, you went, oh, wow, I never knew that?
1: Oh, man, I learn stuff from David Royer every day. It's 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 crazy about how mics work and, you know, the, the physics of it. I mean, one of the things I learned about was transformers and what a difference a transformer makes and how it's just basic physics that size makes all the difference. You know, when I used to record tambourines and I'd use a 414 or a 451 or some standard mic and I'd hear this thump in the bottom end, you know, I always thought that was just the wind compressing the diaphragm or something. Mm -hmm. You put the high pass filter on and it would go away. But what that is, is the transformer overshooting and ringing. And, you know, that was something I never knew that now I'm like really aware of Um, ribbon mics too. I mean, although I run Mojave, I'm a huge ribbon fan And when I was making records, I really wasn't very hip to ribbon mics. So I'd like to kind of go back and start over and remake every record I ever made with uh, the mics that I have available
0: now. (laughs) You're right. I didn't know that either about the Transformers. I always thought it was the same thing. I always thought it was the thump of the tambourine hitting your hand that it was picking up, or it was a big wind blast or something.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. Tambourine is a great way to compare microphones because it's such a complex waveform with such a big transient. So if you're A, B, and mic, you know, here's the deal about microphones. You put up a bunch of microphones and go check one, two into them, and a lot of them are going to sound great, but when you really, it's kind of like a sports car. When you really push it to the extremes, that's where they start to break down. So that's where you hear things like transformer overshoot or, you know, something overloading in the signal path if you use cheap components. And that's really part of what separates us from everybody else is the the quality of the components that we use we really don't compromise there and, and let's see what else I've learned a lot from David about live two-track recording he's way into that and just getting the mics in the sweet spot you know moving them around until you get the right balance so I'm having fun doing that stuff
0: I had a talk not that long ago with Pete Moshe who does all the stuff for Hollow Notes and live at Daryl's house and everything and I asked him what he spends most time on when he's doing live from Daryl's house. And he says, it's just in placement, but it's all for phase coherency. And he's very anal about the phase right. coherency. And, and he said, it takes a long time going through. He says, it's easy to just place the mics and, and everything's there. But getting the phase all together is what takes him all the time. And that's something that most people overlook.
1: Right. Well, you know, one thing I learned about through ribbon mics was using figure-eight patterns and taking advantage of that rejection on all the the side axes. Um, You know, I was a cardioid guy, cardioid and omni guy, and just wasn't that hip to figure-eight patterns. But uh, I would wager that he uses a lot of figure-eight patterns in that setup to get things in phase because you get so much more isolation that way. You get all that nice rejection um, that you get naturally from ribbon mics because they're all figure-eights. And um, condenser mics, too, when you put them in figure eight, you get a lot more isolation and a lot more side rejection Mm. from all the different, you know, all, what is it, four lobes um, on the sides and the top and the bottom. Yeah. I learned a lot about that, too, from working with David.
0: Does David do a lot of two-track recording?
1: You know, not as much as he did a few years back, but he loves doing it. He's done a bunch for KPCC of, like, ethnic music and uh you know, his recordings just sound wonderful, but he's a, a two mic guy, maybe one spot mic, and, you know, moves them around until they sound right.
0: Yeah. One of the best records I ever did was uh, Once in a Blue Moon with Jerry Groom and Mick Taylor. And we were the first project in a new studio, which is now Sonora Recorders, and they didn't have a multi track. So we only had certain dates when we can get the people. So we had to do everything live to, it wasn't two-track, it was live to DAT, And it came out wonderful. It was one of those things where you just had to get it right the first time, and that's what we did. We got a balance and, and just let the players go. And everybody was just so into it because, as you know, as a player, that's when it's the most fun. Oh,
1: yeah, and as an engineer, too, that's when it's the most fun.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I love recording live two-track stuff. You know, I used to do some, like, live radio stuff with Dwight Yoakam and used to always really enjoy doing those. Used to do them at Studio B at Capital, which is still my favorite studio.
0: No kidding. No, that's great. You just mentioned a couple of the products that are on the horizon, but is there, like, something that you want to build and isn't on the books yet, so to speak?
1: Yeah, the, the two I told you about it are, are the two that are at the top of the list. I mean, you know, Ivana just came out with a microphone that's um, kind of a, uses a C37a capsule, a Sony type capsule mm-hmm. that she gives from Josephson. and that's something we talked about doing, so we'll we'll scratch that one off and let her have it. Really nice sounding mic. you know with with Warrior, David reinvented the, the ribbon mic. I mean, he built a better mouse trap. And with condenser mics, you know, I keep hoping that he's going to come up with something that's revolutionary like that. I'm not sure what it would be. We had looked at the rectangular capsule years ago, you know, and then I guess it's ADK came out with that.
0: Audio-Technica, too, I think.
1: Uh, Audio-Technica, that's it. And also, you know, Pearl from Sweden had been making them for a while. So we've looked at different technologies, and then, you know, somebody else comes out with it. We've got a stereo mic that's got lasers on it to point the directions, and now I think it's Townsend or one of the new companies has a mic with a laser on it. So they're doing that.
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah. I just saw actually. You're right. I don't think it's Townsend, but it, but it, it's a, a new co- It's a British company, I think.
1: Right, which is a you know cute little thing to have, especially on a stereo mic. So I've got one of those that I loan to friends from time to time and they flip out over it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I say, David built a better mousetrap with the ribbon microphone, and it revolutionized everything. So I don't know if there's room for condenser mics to be revolutionized. We'll, we'll see what he comes up with. But in the meantime, it's just all about you know building the best quality we can and keeping the prices affordable.
0: Well, okay, let's go there for a second. So the best quality you can, there's two things that determine that. The one is the price and the price that you're looking at, the retail price. So what comes first? Is it build the mic and then figure out how much it's going to cost? Or do you set a price and then try to build around that?
1: No, we build the mics first and then try to make it make sense, try to make it profitable or at least pay for itself, not lose too much money. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the studio biz in that sense. You know, we're we're engineers and we build what we love. But, you know, when we started, there wasn't a lot in that mid-range, like from 600 to $1,200. There really wasn't a lot, the 414 maybe, but there weren't a lot of microphones available in that price range and certainly not any that were really mind-blowingly great, which the MA200 is. So when we first came out with that, it was pretty revolutionary. You know, we sold a lot of that microphone. Then other companies started copying that model, and um, it's gotten a little more competitive over the years. But, you know, building in China but using really high-grade parts um, kind of makes it possible for us to build the best-sounding mics and keep them in that price range. The MA-1000, we actually finished here in Burbank. It's partially made uh, overseas but then we we put the capsule and the transformer and some uh, tube and some other parts in here in Burbank.
0: What's the reason for that?
1: It's actually more cost effective Well they cut co- those parts come from here Oh so rather than shipping them overseas and shipping them back um, it's just more cost effective to do it here.
0: Even the capsule
1: uh, the capsule comes from here too.
0: That's amazing. I didn't think there were American manufacturers that made capsules. I thought they all came from either Germany or China.
1: Right. Well, we have a proprietary source for the capsule that I'm not at liberty to reveal, but uh, suffice to say, when we were doing the beta testing for this mic, uh, this capsule won every shootout, and that included a bunch of expensive German capsules. And you know, really, we weren't looking at price. We were just trying to find the best capsule we could— that was consistent. You know, a problem with a lot of the handmade German ones is they're not very consistent. We wanted one that was really consistent. So we found a capsule source that we're really happy with.
0: You mentioned Townsend Labs before. What's your take on virtual microphones?
1: Well, you know, back when, you know, going way, way back when, let's say when ADATS came out and I was a studio owner, you know, you can either fight the new technology or you can embrace it. And you might as well embrace it because it's, it's going to be there regardless. So I look at it as Townsend and Slate, both of those companies, those are great teaching tools for people. You know, somebody buys one of those, they're going to get to hear an approximation of a bunch of good mics, and then hopefully that's going to inspire them to go out and buy the real thing. And, uh, you know, I still think you're probably better off if you've got 1000 bucks going and buying an MA-200 and having a really high quality microphone but there's a lot to be said for the educational aspect of it so you know i think it's i think it's great and it's whether i think it's great or not it's fair so better learn to love it
0: i did an interview podcast interview with chris townsend and he recorded his part on oh, whatever they call it, the model i don't remember but vms and then he sent me the file with the software so I got a chance to cool. play around with it. And I have to say I was impressed. I was prepared to not like it and it didn't end up that way. But that being said, it was nothing but dialogue, so it's very difficult to really tell. But, you know, it was better than I had anticipated, I have to say.
1: You know, my take on it is kinda like when when pods first came out, line six, and I'm a big line six fan. I think what they're making these days is just phenomenal. But you know i was had this conversation with pete anderson who i worked with for many years and it's like yeah we can use that but where's the fun where's the fun factor <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. there's nothing like getting a vintage amp out and putting a microphone on it or getting a vintage mic out and singing on it you know that's part of what makes going to work fun there's two sides to it
0: but that being said that technology is getting so good that i think it is fun anymore and I've talked and I'm sure you probably have as well. I have a number of friends that are pros that they've switched over, you know, and, and again, people with big amp collections that are saying, this is easier. Just use this. Yeah. For better, for worse. For,
1: for a touring, I think for a live musician, for a guitar player, it makes total sense to be able to have all those sounds stored and just be able to hit a button, go back and forth. Um, in the studio, it depends on what you're doing. You know, if you've got sitting there staring in a room full of vintage amps, you know who who wouldn't want to use those. But if you're doing fast turnaround work and people are sending you files and you don't have a lot of time, you know it's great to have all that new technology and just dial it up, as long as the client's happy.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: I'm I'm old, Bobby, so I like the fun factor of placing the microphone.
0: <laughs> okay, speaking of fun, what's the most fun thing that you do now?
1: Uh, play bass. (laughs) Yeah, I still like, you know, I play occasional gigs with Jim Lauderdale and Ann McHugh and I play with our, our friend, mutual friend, Tony Valenziano and his cover band from time to time. We just played Tony's birthday party last Friday and that was a gas. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like getting up on stage and playing still what got me into this mess in the first place. So still love doing it.
0: You know what? What's fun about Um, it is going back to the way it was when you first started, where there was no pressure. Yep. (laughs) When there was uh, when it was you know more for the fun of it than anything else.
1: Yeah. Well, there's no money in it, so at least at the level I'm doing it, so it's a pure labor of love. But it's you know it's just it's that magic of playing with other live musicians, and when they're great, you're playing with you know Ted Greenberg or. Dave Raven or some great drummer like that, Mitch Marine, the guys that I play with. It's just always a thrill.
0: Yeah, yeah. What's the hardest thing you have to do these days?
1: Well, you know, I like using different aspects of my brain, but running a a small business like this is still, it's not as hard as running a studio was, but it's not that much easier. You still have the same pressures to, you know, meet payroll and, payroll taxes and workers' comp and all that stuff. So I'm glad I know how to do all that stuff, but it, it's certainly not fun. Playing with the microphones is a lot more fun. <laughs> Talking to David about microphones or going to trade shows, those kind of things.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I'm in Talking the, to you. I'm in the same position where when I do the creative stuff, it's so much better than when you have to get down to the business or sales or marketing, and it's just like, ah. Oh. Okay, have to put that hat on today.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you the difference, though. You know, owning a studio, it was probably like, at least it felt like half my time was trying to collect money. And it used to get really nasty. You know, you'd have to make threats. to, you know, okay, I've got your hard drive and a hammer you have till midnight (laughs) to pay your tab or, you know, okay, we're erasing the kick drum today, the snare drum tomorrow, (laughs) those kind of things. You know, and since I've been doing this, I haven't had to threaten anybody anything. People pay on time. and You know, it's much more adult and business-like.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, last question. I didn't get a chance to ask you this the last time you were on because I think it was right after that one. I began to ask this question of everyone. What's the best piece of business advice that you've received or maybe you've learned along the way?
1: Man, I would say... That I, what I've learned along long way is to learn, you know, some basic business skills. I, in the late 90s, when my son was being born, and I kind of realized that, you know, my business plan in Mad Dog was always that I would produce a couple of multi-platinum records, and that was that was it. That was my business plan. <laughs> so even though I had a good run and, you know, very satisfied with my career, that never happened. So... At one point, I kind of woke up and realized I was a small business owner, and I went back to Glendale Community College and took two semesters of accounting and a semester of uh, business law, and that really changed my life. I mean, I couldn't be doing this gig without that background, and when you learn a little bit of accounting or even just basic bookkeeping, you kind of scratch your head and go, how can anybody function without knowing this stuff? Yeah. You know, it's just something that everybody should know. So, and I think that the, the schools are pretty hip to that these days from what I can tell. That, you know, they're not just teaching you how to how to do signal flow, but they're teaching you some basic business skills because you really need it. You know, you're on your own these days. And uh seems like musicians, young musicians that are out there trying to make it, they're a self-contained business. So you got to have some, some business chops and also some, you know, that need to study the things you teach them web skills to market your own music.
0: You know, one of the problems that a lot of schools have is that they just teach those basic things, how to be a musician, how to be an engineer. And the idea is you're going to go out and get a job. And it's not like that. If you're a pro, you're an entrepreneur. You're making your own gigs right. all the time. So thankfully, I think there are more and more schools that are figuring that out. And like you say, they're including the basic business courses that you really need.
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of the four-year school and not to step on any toes because I've got a lot of friends that are at the you know, pay-for-play recording schools. And I think they do a good job for what they do. But I think that if you're going to, especially if you're going to borrow money to go to school, you know, go to, a, go to a real school and get a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree where they force you to take some general education courses. I think that's a, a better—if my son wanted to be an engineer, and thank God he doesn't, <laughs> I would recommend him to go that path. And there's plenty of programs out there like that these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right, definitely.
1: I'd hate um, to see somebody go, you know, 60 or 80 grand in debt just to go to recording school.
0: That's pretty crazy, I have to say. I just can't even imagine that. It's way too much money for what you get.
1: Yeah, and where are you going to work? What are you going to do?
0: Well, luckily, we don't have to worry about that anymore.
1: <laughs> That's right. We're at the other end. Yeah. We're cruising, Bobby.
0: Check out Mojave Audio microphones at mojaveaudio.com. It's all one word, Mojave Audio M-O-J-A-V-E, audio.com. When you get there... Click on the About Us tab to find out more about the interesting life of Dusty Wakeman. Thanks for listening to me and being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby